This episode is brought to you by DailyDrip.com. Daily Drip makes it easy to keep up to date on your programming skills. You already know how much time it takes to find good resources and learn new languages. What if the hard part of that was already done for you? Sign up for Daily Drip and pick a topic that you want to learn about. Want to learn Swift? How about Elm? Or maybe you just want to brush up on your CSS and HTML. Every weekday, you'll get a short video or reading delivered to you via email. The best part is it only takes five minutes a day. We have a special coupon code just for BuildPhase listeners. If you sign up using the coupon code BuildPhase, all one word, you'll save $9 on your first month, which means you can try out the Swift topic for free. Don't forget to use the coupon code BuildPhase to show support for our podcast. Make learning a part of your daily routine with dailydrip.com. Yeah, I, I really like um, sort of the technical depth. Like it's hard to do that in a in a podcast. I think, you know, to really talk about programming. And uh, you guys seem to be doing a good job at it. Oh, thanks. Well, thank you. Yeah, we try. I think the trick to that is we never actually arrive at conclusions. We just postulate a lot of things, <laughs> say a lot of words to just get the listeners thinking. Right. At least that's how I like to spin it. Hey everybody, this is Jack in Stockholm. This is Chris in Berlin. This is Mark in San Francisco. And this is BuildPhase. The thing I like the most is is like a lot of the times I just heard you I don't know. And I think that's such a good answer so many times. Like I like it when people say I don't know. I hate it when people try to convince you of something or try to, to tell you the truth when they don't really know. So Yeah, I think that's uh sort of a hallmark of most of the time that I was at ThoughtBot was it's a bunch of really smart people who are pretty good at figuring things out, but are seldom going to jump down anyone's throat and say, this thing that I believe is the absolute truth that you all must agree with. Like it's very, everything is always open to interpretation and open to trying to find new ways to do things and new models of the world and our ideas that are better than the old ones. So. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. I wish more people were like that. I, I'm lucky to have a a coworker who's like that as well, but it's not the default, right? No, really not. I feel like I've I've been in plenty of places where that is not really what's happening. You know, I like to be around, working with people who are open minded and you know willing to kind of roll with the punches and work together to find new and better solutions. So. Yeah, it took me a while. Some like, uh, so I'm working with Florian. Mm-hmm. When we started working together, he was my client, and he didn't know any iOS development. and And he would always ask me like, "Why is it like that?" And I would always give the answer like, "Oh, it's just the way we do things." And um, he would always come back the next day and saying, "Well, actually, I, I I looked into it, and you know, that's when I also at some point learned to say, you know, I don't know." <laughs> took me a while. Right. I think in in some sense we are we're trained to kind of try and always be right, and there can be a, a, set, a sort of one-upmanship about people being right about stuff, or at least wanting to assert that they're right about things. You see it a lot on mm-hmm. Twitter and blogs to some extent. And I think it's you know it's good that people will will sort of put themselves out there and say, "This is what I have found. This is what I think." But I think in this industry, especially where 
everything changes so frequently and all of our assumptions can flip over the span of five or 10 or certainly 20 years, you know, that it's like nothing that we do right now is carved in stone and is going to be something that everyone will look back later and say, yeah, those guys really had it right. You know, probably in a hundred years, they'll look back and say, wow, that was really primitive. No, no wonder, you know, they can really, really get anything done with the tools they had then. I know, I know. I was wondering, are are you guys doing any uh, any Swift three yet, like in production? I am not really. I've just started something. So basically, I just recently changed jobs, and I've been kind of playing around with some projects just to sort of scratch my own itches while I'm waiting for client work to get really rolling. And so I have been doing a little bit with with Swift three, just because I started some some fresh projects, and I figured why not use Swift three. And so you know, so far everything is working fine. But I think the the bigger challenge is taking an older code base and bring it up to Swift 3. And that I have not really done yet. I know Mark and I, we've talked about this, about this a few times, about what you, what you guys are doing at your job, and you're staying away from Swift 3 for now, right? Yeah, we're just a little too busy trying to get this rewrite across the line, hmm. finally. And hmm. we don't want to take the time to do it right now. I was just talking to Keith from Lyft the other day, Keith Smiley, and he did the transition on Lyft, and it took him, I think, about two weeks hmm. to do all of it. We just don't have that kind of time right now, but I'm looking forward to it. It took me uh, about half a day, so one afternoon, but this was an app with three view controllers, so I, you know, I cannot imagine what it's like for a real app. Right. It's really scary. So what are, just to sort of give our listeners and to give me a clue, <laughs> what are you and, <laughs> you and Florian actually working on these days? Yeah, well, it's been mainly two things, writing books and, and Swift Talk. So, um, mm-hmm. so I wrote the functional Swift and advanced Swift book mm-hmm. and well, both times with different co-authors and we started this video series Swift talk a while ago. And before that we were doing lots of other stuff on the side as well. But at the beginning of the year, we said like, let's do one thing, right. And that one okay. thing is still like a couple of things, but you know, it's just objective C.io that we're doing now. And yeah, that's basically it. So, so I'm sort of trying to research swift full-time and you know and write about it and tell others about it okay nice the books that you've you've been writing are these uh, self-published or are are you working with a publisher or what is the story with those yeah it's completely self-published so so when we started writing the first book we realized like either we can try to find a publisher or we can do it ourselves and we figured that with objective.co we got enough traffic to you know at least sell a couple of books and right so all the publishers i didn't talk to too many because it was sort of an easy decision but what i heard and sometimes we we got publishers who got in touch with us you get like maybe 10 percent if you're lucky so mm-hmm. you know if if we can sell 10 percent of the copies that, that a real publisher would sell then it's a better deal for us so yeah we've been doing everything ourselves and and it's working out sort of yeah. Nice. So are you paying someone outside for like helping you with, with editing, copy editing, that sort of thing? Yeah, exactly. So with most of the things, Ola Begeman is our mm-hmm. editor, our technical editor, and he sort of looks at the code and looks at the, the flow. And then for all the copy editing, we work with Natalie and we've been working with her since the first issue of Objective-C.io. And she's just really good at, you know, making sure that our English is correct and also that everything flows and you know she catches a lot of things and fixes a lot of things in our broken horrible English right 
Yeah, I know when yeah. I was when I was working in books, it was all done through A Press, and they would provide different copy editors, usually one per book. Sometimes you'd, they would switch halfway through for for some reason or other, just you know, resource allocation. And when you had a, a good copy editor, I feel like those people were really just worth gold. Like you, like I would write something that, that I thought was pretty good, and then I would get a chapter back with so many sentences, you know stricken through with red and whole big chunks sort of tossed around forward and backward. And I'd read it and I'd go, wow, mm. that sounds a lot better than what I wrote. You know, just that, but when you're writing it yourself, you don't always see it. It's so hard to like, and for the books I wrote, I, I had to go back and edit them and update them all for Swift 3. And, mm. and then I sort of read a lot of things that are really bad. Like I, I, I read them and I'm like, oh my God, did I write that? And, you know, I guess the, the upside about that is that, that I learned, I think. But, yeah, it's so hard. Like, And I think, you know, only when you have a lot of time in between, you can read your own writing back and, and sort of criticize it. But still, are you, are you still writing any books? Oh, I have not really been for quite a while. I was mostly just working on this uh, beginning iPhone development book for, I don't remember, mm -hmm. four or five annual revisions and... Eventually, I just got sort of burned out on it. I felt like I was kind of sort of trudging through the same swamp year after year because it's pretty much essentially rewriting the whole book from scratch almost every time. I mean, it, not quite. Like the, the structure was largely the same. There was always be every year we figure, okay, is this chapter too relevant? Should we change things around and add some new content for some new things? But it was mostly a matter mm -hmm. of going through the old book which the book is very detailed description of to the level of where buttons are and menu items are in Xcode. It's designed to be able to, hmm. you should be able to have the book open and Xcode open and follow step by step exactly how to put things together, which can be good for people who are very new to the platform. But yeah. for actually writing the book, it's pretty annoying to work because <laughs> everything changes. You know, small things change in Xcode and it makes you have to sort of change small things in paragraphs all throughout the book because of something that is not a difference in in UI kit or foundation or Objective-C or Swift. It's just something that is, something has moved in Xcode, some functionality, and it throws everything off a bit. Yeah, I can only imagine how much work that is. But was the first, like writing the first edition must have been fun, right? Well, so I, I wasn't on the first edition. I came in on, I think, the third edition. So it was started oh. by Dave Mark and Jeff LaMarche. And they'd written two editions in quick succession. Like the first edition came out right after the iOS SDK first came out. And then iOS 3 came out and they're like, okay, we got to update this. So within a half year, I think they did two revisions of this, which is crazy. And then oh, wow. I came in after that and I was the primary author for a while and then got some other people to shift into it more, taking over more and more from me. So I, I was the primary author for, I guess, for three full editions, more or less. Oh, wow. And it's a it's a book that is like seven or maybe eight hundred pages by now, and it's just it's just so much work. It, it was fun in a way, and it was an interesting process. But you know, again, it was sort of like I was kind of stomping through the same swamp all the time. And at some point, I I felt like okay, I'm dealing with this very beginner level stuff, which is again is a learning experience because you're learning how to explain things in a very precise and specific way and trying to be consistent in that approach throughout the course of this giant book. But I would kind of rather write about more advanced topics, honestly, because I feel like I, I just got, I sort of got tired of it. 
So yeah, you should do it. I think you know there's a, there's a huge gap there. Yeah, I think uh, I was reluctant of, for, of doing so for a while because I, I guess I was mostly in the mindset of where a company like A Press is at, whereas their conventional wisdom is, oh, well, we can't sell as many books for advanced programmers as we can for newcomers because advanced programmers are better at finding information on their own, and so they won't buy as many books, and so it's not worthwhile for them, right? So they need a certain volume in order to make things work because they have such a heavy process. Whereas yeah. the way that you guys are doing and a lot of other people are doing, you know, it's it's you can write a, a smaller book that has that is a more targeted market for more advanced developers and sell five hundred copies and, you know, still make an, a nice amount of money. No one's gonna get rich on it, but it's it's you know, you can earn something on it compared to earning ten to fifteen percent. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think, you know, yeah, there are a lot of opportunities there. And, you know, of course, like a real publishing company, they will do things like marketing. But uh, mm. you have to have some kind of strategy. At, you know, you have to think about it a little bit at least or have some kind of outlets that you already control or whatever, you know, like then you have to because otherwise, right. you know, you end up writing a great book and nobody reads it. And that that's also I, I guess that can also be very frustrating. Yeah, I, I think def definitely so. So I was I was lucky enough to step into a a book series or a you know a third version of a book that was already doing quite well because it was you know they had had one of the first iOS developer books out there really. So when I got on that third edition was sort of it was already late when they asked me to, to join on, and so by the time it came mm. out, there was actually a huge number of backorders for that book. So there was a, a huge amount of sales on the first quarter of it, which of course the way, the way the traditional book business is, is you don't see any money until probably a year after you write something because you write stuff and it goes through a long editorial process and then it goes out and then a quarter or two after sales start happening is when you start getting royalties. It's really weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was a whole weird thing also. It's like this very extremely delayed gratification for the, for the effort you're doing. We, we we did it the other way around. We started getting the royalties before we even wrote something. <laughs> okay. <laughs> How did that work? Yeah. Well, we, we just, you know, when we realized we want to write this functional Swift book, then we started a pre-order thing. Ah, okay. People still paid us for the, for the whole book, but we hadn't finished the book yet. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. That's a much nicer way to go. <laughs> yeah. I like talking about um, self-published books. I think like my favorite book by far that sort of gets way too little attention is the, the Scene Kit book by David Rundquist. Mm. He, he's also in Stockholm, yep. I guess. Yep, David is great. He's super yeah. smart. I have that book. I've been meaning to pay more attention to it. <laughs> yeah. I signed on early to help him with early editions and provide feedback and stuff. And I kind of totally missed the train on that. And I don't think I ever gave him any proper feedback at all. It's kind of it's you know it's kind of, it's kind of like signing up to to be a beta tester for somebody else's software. It's like yeah that sounds great, but then sometimes life gets in the way. But yeah, Dave was a, Dave was a great guy, and the book seems great as far as I can tell so far. And he's uh, you know, he's very good at digging into you know both that and all of the uh, all of the core graphic stuff and core animation. He's really great at. Yeah, he he has all these interactive graphics and stuff in there, right? Like right. it's all about 3D modeling and and he has all these 3D models in his book uh, in iBooks 
And uh, every time I open it up, it sort of blows me away how much love there is in that book. You know, like he spent so much time and you can tell that it's so thought out and so precise and well designed. Mm. I really like it. Yep, that's a good one. I'm going to go buy that book. Yeah, you really right should. Now. It's it's really, uh, like you say, there, there's a lot of love that goes in, that's gone into it. And it's also a very good showcase for the kind of thing that is possible with iBooks, you know, that, you, that there's no way you could do obviously with the print book or anything else you couldn't do with Kindle. You, I mean, you, it requires the kind of widgets that you, you can actually build in JavaScript inside of an iBook. So it's very cool. Hmm. Do you write anything, Mark? No, I am not a published author. Feeling a little left out, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you can write like on a blog or something, right? Sure, sure. No, I haven't blogged in a very long time, but I do enjoy writing. I enjoy writing more than speaking says mm-hmm. the podcast host, and I should get back into it. You wrote articles yeah. for the ThoughtBot blog occasionally, right? You wrote a few. One or two. Yeah. Yeah, I read, like, I always remember, like, when I see a ThoughtBot blog article, it's always, like, a good feeling. Like, you know that it's thought out and and quality stuff. Yeah, that was actually an interesting, another interesting thing about working at ThoughtBot was the way the blogging is done is... Um, it's all built around pull requests, just like the way we write software. So mm-hmm. people will write something and it's in Markdown and they put it up and then pass a link around for others to look at and say, hey, give me some feedback. So anything that goes up on the blog typically has been peer reviewed by several people. That's awesome. If I remember correctly, there's even a grammar team in GitHub and you can mention the grammar team and they will come and make sure that your English looks good. Yep. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's awesome. It's an amazing resource. Did you guys see uh, Danger, this thing by Orta the Rocks? I don't think so. We have looked into it a little bit. We're not exactly sure what we're going to use it for yet. But once we get some of our release processes in line and automated, we hope to be checking things like making sure that PRs are you know, not modifying the XE config files or making sure that there's like changelog entries for certain types of PRs, stuff like that. Yeah. And- are, you, are you using it? No, no, but I really want to. And, and I saw that it has also this sort of spell checking feature. So you can also use it for blog articles, I think. And then it at least, you know, it tries to do an automatic spell checking and maybe even grammar checking. I don't know exactly, but uh, there's something in there for that as well. Hmm, that's awesome. Yeah, I I like this automation kind of workflow. And I think, you know, it has a lot of potential. I just haven't gotten around to setting it up yet and trying it out. Yeah, I'm just I'm scanning over the readme for it right now. It looks pretty interesting. I do like uh, the idea of the automation. I think the risk there is that sometimes like a team can have things set up for how the team wants to do things. And if you're a member of the team and don't agree 100% with the rules, <laughs> you will still get all the warnings for all these things that you feel like, I don't really think that's right. Like... I remember having some things where we had uh, we were using Hound for certain things to sort of check out the code. It's kind of a style enforcer. Mm-hmm. And it, w- it would give you warnings about things like variable names being too short or being too long and that kind of thing. And sometimes you're just like, well, I need this thing to be one character longer than what you think is the right amount. But there was not a good way, as far as I knew, to sort of disable it to say, okay... <laughs> leave this or maybe there was a way eventually I figured out to say okay ignore this variable's length just let it be it was sort of all or nothing yeah that was uh, the impression that i had anyway 
uh, but I never got into it deeply enough to know. I'm sure I'm sure someone probably if, we were, if Gordon were on the he would say no 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 you just got to do this and this and this. So. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm sort of blessed to work in a really small team. It's mostly just Florian and me. So a lot of these issues I never have to face. And yet at the same time, I feel a bit like a cheat because, you know, I never have any of the issues that people in the real world have. And uh, it's sometimes, you know, like pull request etiquette, like for me, it doesn't really matter. I just commit to master most of the time. Right. Yeah, but when you're doing a one-person project, that's totally feasible. I think for almost yeah. for almost all of my side projects, the things that I work on for fun, I seldom have any kind of branches or anything because there's not much point because I know what I'm doing and I'm not usually pursuing multiple tracks at once. Like I'm working on one feature at a time until it's done. So Yeah, exactly. So that's totally fine. What I found, though, after working for a few years at ThoughtBot where everything was heavily pull request-based, I kind of got used to the pull request workflow and in a way it became kind of a nice luxury to have that both in the sense that I knew I had colleagues around who were going to look at my code which both it, it, it felt like a safety net in one sense that okay I know that if I if I miss something obvious and dumb here someone's going to see it hmm. and it also made me a little bit more conscientious about what I was doing because I knew other people were going to see it. And rather than having to explain myself for someone, like, why did you do this? And I'd have to explain myself. I would. It's better if I just did it in a clear and correct way in the first place. Yeah. Which is also really a lesson that I learned a lot when I was working on the books for that matter too. But once you step away from that, it can suddenly feel like, oh, wow, now I'm just writing code and it's being sent off into the void and you know no one's ever going to see it. I think about all the products that I've worked on over the years where I was the only only developer working on something for a longer period of time and there may have ended up, ended up being products and things built around what I built, but the actual source code maybe no one ever looked at but me. And it doesn't you know that, which doesn't mean that it's bad or wrong, it just means that if I had been passing things around with others more I probably could have, I surely could have come up with solutions that were better and solution and solutions that were cleaner and easier to maintain and all that good stuff. Yeah, there's this um, this embarrassment factor also, right? Like I, I have that a lot. Like you know, mm. like not wanting to be embarrassed sort of pushes you to to new limits. Yeah, and, and I think as long as you're in a working in a team where you feel you feel safe, that you feel that you trust the other people, and where there is some mutual trust built up, then it feels like, okay, I dare to push this out there to my colleagues. And I know that if I'm wrong, if I'm making silly mistakes, they're going to tell me and they're going to point it out in a way that is kind. And, and you know, they're not going to be trying to be mean to me like, oh man, you don't know anything. But it's more like, oh, hey, you should think about this. Did you think about this? You know, yeah. where it's, Everyone is trying to help each other out and is trying to work on things and, and grow as developers together. It's not about one-upmanship. It's not about like, oh, man, did you see what that guy pushed in? What a what an idiot. It's more like, you know, people are actually trying to lift each other and lift, lift themselves at the same time. Yeah, I, I've never really had an issue with that. Like, I've never really been on teams where people were doing that. Maybe that means that I was the one who was doing that, but I don't. I don't think so. Maybe most of the teams I've worked on, everybody was really friendly mm -hmm. and, you know, trying to help each other and also sort of realizing that everybody had different skills and, you know, 
even like juniors mm-hmm. can be very helpful in, in sort of when they ask why do you do it like that you know like either you can teach them something but most of the times it can be done in a better or clearer way yeah absolutely i think i think i've also been fortunate that i've mostly been on good teams like that i've had a few a few experiences where i've been working someplace and some team members were kind of territorial about things like well this section of this application is mine and i wrote it and i just know that i'm right i'm not going to take any guff from you guys about you know you think you could have done something better or whatever just like it's people get kind of defensive and territorial and that's unfortunate so i've I worked in a few places like that where it ends up being kind of these silos of developers working on where each each little section is kind of somebody's pet project mm-hmm. and that's not fun were you able to do something about it uh eventually leave <laughs> <laughs> I think in some cases that can be valuable. I mean, we have the same sort of concept at Venmo is that across the team, you have people who understand some core parts of the app better than everyone else. And I think it's good to have that one expert who really understands, you know, authentication and sign up and log in and the onboarding flows and all that, or someone Mm -hmm. who really understands the stack of showing stories and liking and commenting. It is nice having that one person to go to or that one person to assign on a PR when you're maybe refactoring something in that system or making a big change and you're maybe not sure of like what the consequences might be, but Hmm. there's a balance there of like having those experts. But the key is that everybody still has to try to have a knowledge of the whole system and just be good teammates. Right. Yeah. I feel uncomfortable. So making changes in that section, you know, like probably at least if, if somebody really owns it, it it might feel quite scary. Yeah. I think it's, it can be good and natural to have, I mean, different people will have different things that they are paying more attention to because they've worked on them more or find them more interesting. I think the the danger lies when an individual becomes the sole authority for a particular section, and like, and and the kind of conventional wisdom in the team is, oh, no one should look at that because this guy wrote that and it's got some special tricks, and he'll be upset if anybody messes with it or gives any feedback about, you know, asking why it is that way. Yeah. Nobody's dictatorial over their part of the code. They're just like a librarian for that part of the code. Right. You can go to them and that's what you want. Yeah. Yeah. That's nice. We had a guy like that once on the team and uh, his thing was he knew everything about everything and he was still really nice about it. Like uh, Mm. his name was Shuert and we used to call him Shugol because he just, you know, you could walk up to him and ask him any question and he would know the answer always. Hmm. Super cool guy. Cool. So Jack, what do you want to write about? Do you know the topic for your next book? I don't really. I've got a few ideas. I think there, there are... You know, there are a number of different things that have kind of drawn my attention here and there throughout the years. I've been interested in in functional reactive programming at first, you know, which I first heard of through Reactive Cocoa, really. But I feel like that project is problematic in the sense that, like that particular project, because it is changing so much all the time, I have a hard time keeping up with it. <laughs> but I mean, mm-hmm. you can do you can do the principles of FRP don't obviously don't require reactive cocoa. They don't require you know you can do it yourself. So th- that is something. But I feel like it's also that's something that has become because there are a number of frameworks around that, and a lot of them are evolving so quickly. There's kind of a lot of a lot of noise in that space. I think it'd be hard to write something, you know, to say to write a book that is about reactive cocoa, for instance, or any of the, any framework in particular. By the time you're done with the book, it's going to likely be 
quite out of date because all the APIs are changing all the time. Yeah. So that's one thing. I think I'm lately I've been thinking a little bit about trying to delve into some of Apple's things that have not got that much attention. Like for instance, CloudKit and TVML Kit. You know, they have some documentation for these things which will get you part way. And there's there's some example code out there, but to build a a bigger application requires some more work. And I, I would like to sort of maybe dig into that a bit and see if I can come up with something that would be interesting to write about. But uh, I think, you know, just just the, the little bit of playing around that I've been doing so far has been really, really interesting. There are a lot of, uh, especially with CloudKit, there are a lot of weird little things you have to think about, especially when you're synchronizing across multiple apps with the same login. It's not terrible, but it's not always super straightforward either. I've never never looked into it so what can you do so it's it's more than just key value storage now right yeah so you can actually create uh, you create records and every record you create you assign to a type so there's just a there's just a single class called ck record and you create an instance you say i want to create a record of type order or of type line item or whatever say you're building a system with orders and line items mm-hmm. and those things are not represented as not necessarily represented as any, as types in your in your application, but you can you can definitely make them. But by default, they are just a CK record object that you can you can access its properties via subscripting. And when you are writing your application in the development environment against the development cloud Git, basically you can just make those things up on the fly and say, okay, I'm going to make a new CK record type and I'm going to assign it some properties and save it, and there it goes. And CloudKit will will sort of manage that, that schema for you on the server side. Then later when you want to actually deploy this for production, then those things are kind of frozen in place. So then you can't just sort of add keys willy-nilly. Yeah, that makes sense. So you have to have some kind of migration for the next version of your app. And Yeah, I believe so. And that I have not, so far I've not yet gotten. I have not actually put anything into production yet. I'm still just working with things in development. So that's kind of interesting. You can you have this sort of very kind of free form entity creation mechanism and so there there's just a few types you have for the fields in the, in the CK records you have the basic value types that you have in foundation plus you have a reference type which can be a reference to another CK record so that's how you do relationships so it's not a strictly like you know there's not foreign keys exactly but that's essentially what it is and the other key component of this is that you can create subscriptions you can say whenever an object of this type matching this certain predicate is updated or created or deleted, then I want to be notified and your app will get a push notification. Oh, nice. Yeah, it sounds like like a really cool thing. Like, But how would that work Like with, with updates? Like, let's say your schema changes and you, know, you, you need to add a new field and then you have clients with an old app. Like how? Yeah, that is a good question, which I have not gotten to yet. I do know that there is some notion of schema versions oh, yeah. that the system is aware of. So for instance, sometimes, like now and then in the process of working on what I've been doing, I'm resetting the database entirely on, for in the development environment. And sometimes when I do that, it seems to take a moment for things to actually propagate through whatever systems Apple has. So I noticed if I do that and then I try and launch my app immediately, it'll sometimes give me weird errors and messages in the console log saying things like, oh, 
I don't want to use this schema version because I already have a newer schema version, both of which have just these long string tags identifying them. So it, ha it has some notion of the possibility of multiple schemas that are of different age. And there must be some way that you can that you can create migrations between them, but I'm not that far yet. Yeah. So this is kind of why I think this could be an interesting topic for a book is because there are a lot of pieces there, but there's not really an overarching story about how to build a large application that uses all these pieces and use them in a nice way that is, a is able to evolve and move forward over time. Yeah, and I guess as an like an independent author you can also go a little bit further than you know what apple can say and and will say right like you can right you can compare to other other services or you know look look at how to integrate this with other things than just iOS or macOS right because apple's documentation is very you know is typically very much tied to what apple has built internally and is showing you publicly, right? They don't, they don't usually include a lot of other things. Yeah. So I can, you know, I can definitely go farther and say, Hey, you know, if you want to make all this easier, you know, here's the third party framework that I found or that I wrote or whatever that, that will let you build this kind of thing in your cloud kit application more easily. And I've noticed that also a lot with TVML kit, which I don't know if you've looked at that at all. Mark and I've talked a bit about this before. It's basically a, that's the system for TVOS that lets you build TVOS apps that are displayed using nice native UI components, but all that stuff is exposed to JavaScript through the DOM. So you write your applications yeah. in JavaScript, and those are filled with, like the actual display is populated from, from TML, which is an XML subset. And you can walk through Apple's examples of how it works, and it's all very sort of, like the examples are are very much laid out super clearly in the code in terms of, okay, here you can write some code that contains a big string of JavaScript that contains the <laughs> TVML document inside it. And you're going to execute that string. But it's like, wait a minute, in reality, you would never do that. Like you would use, you would use some templating system probably to create the TVML document and then wrap that in J JavaScript if you need to. Like they would never really do it this way. But because Apple doesn't have, or they don't have at least publicly any tools around this or any libraries around this, they don't show you that. And so for, you know, for someone who's looking at it with, with somewhat naive eyes, they might think, oh, okay, well, that's, you know, that's interesting. I guess that's just the way to do it. And it would lead, you know, there probably are some TVS, TVS apps out there already that are built that way that could be built in a much nicer way if people thought about some different steps to abstract things away. This is also typical Apple, right? Like they did this with UIKit as well. Like, you know, put your entire core data stack in your app delegate and, you know, put mm. all your model logic in your view controller. And, you know, there was never any guidance there. So it's like, you know, right. like I, I, I wonder, like, is it just, do they lack the resources or, or is the documentation team maybe, don't they know how people are writing apps and that everybody's literally copying everything Apple is doing? I, I wonder what the, if there's like any rational thought behind it or if it's just, you know, they're too busy. Yeah, I, I don't really know. I think that um, maybe thinking about the the origins of UIKit, which obviously comes from AppKit and FoundationKit and all these things, we call them frameworks, but they're kind of more toolboxes. Right? There are a number of independent parts 
that you can use them one and one or you can use them together. And UIKit does have a, a bit more of a big picture because it has view controllers and things from day one. I mean, AppKit has that now too. But if you compare that with something like Ruby on Rails, which is really a very, you know, it's an opinionated framework. It has a mm. set of things that it expects you to build your applications this way. There is an easy path. And if you if you build it the way that, that it suggests you to build it, things are going to probably work out pretty well. Yeah. And Apple doesn't really have a suggested way of actually assembling an application beyond, like you said, yeah, just dump all your logic in the view controllers and put all your configuration in the app delegate. And those are just really anti-patterns, right? And so they don't, I don't know. I feel like Apple could benefit from taking their frameworks a bit farther and actually making real opinionated frameworks out of them. So go beyond just providing a toolkit approach and actually providing something a little bit more, a little bit deeper, a little bit more big picture. That would be really nice. I've been experimenting with doing that myself, but it's really hard. Like, especially if you're building on top of UIKit, it's right. it's not so easy to to provide a nice abstraction. Either you have to stay very close to UIKit, and if you really want to move away from it, it becomes very messy because of the way UIKit works. And I've been struggling with this for for months now, like trying to think of a good abstraction, you know, for like a navigation controller and stuff like that. Uh, Hmm. it's not so easy. And, and I think, you know, probably the solution has to come from Apple. Yeah, it, it, pro it probably does, essentially. I think it, it could be instructive, actually, to look at, if you're thinking along these lines, to look at uh, TVML Kit just to see, because that is sort of, you know, despite the kind of bad way they, they tell you to generate the, the actual code, you know, put this big string inside your controller somewhere. Hmm. The way that TVML Kit actually works is pretty interesting because it is kind of another layer of abstraction on top of UI Kit. You know, it seems to be using UI Navigation Controller and all of these things, but the interface you have to it is instead of using those directly, you have kind of these templates that Apple gives you. Like here's a template that shows you a list of items on the left and a, a big picture of the item on of one item, one selected item on the right, that kind of thing, and these are sort of like pre-configured view controllers in a way, and you can modify some of their some of the parameters with like you can you can apply some styling. Mm -hmm. But it sort of it sort of gives you a more high level approach to dealing with these things. And it's, it's not really appropriate for every application, but for some, I think it could be useful. And it's it indicates to me that at least someone there at Apple is kind of thinking <laughs> thinking along those lines of trying to make something that is you know, lets you take one step back from all of it, while at the same time giving you the capability to deal with the details, because you still can do things like you can make a custom UI view and make that correspond to your own element type in the XML. So you can still do a lot of interesting stuff while having this kind of one step back perspective on everything, because you're not actually talking directly to the view controllers in Swift or Objective-C. It's all mediated through JavaScript and through what the environment provides the DOM. So it sounds a little bit like like React Native or something. That's in also, a way, in a way, maybe yeah. I would use React Native if, if it were Swift. You know, JavaScript is sort of holding me back, but everybody keep, keeps telling me that JavaScript is really nice these days. So, with I don't know what they use, Flow or TypeScript or PureScript, that should be should make JavaScript fun again. 
Yeah, maybe. That's I I I'm kind of in the, on your page with this. Like everyone, <laughs> everyone's telling me JavaScript is fine now, but I'm I'm hesitant. Yeah, probably with UIKit there will be some, like there, I'm pretty sure there are many people at Apple thinking about this hard, you know, and and that's also why I sort of you know while well, I feel that my attempts are pretty useless because probably Apple will come back and have a solution for for this problem and solve it in a in a much better way than I could even imagine. Hmm. This is at least this is what they keep doing with Swift. Like I always think like I know a little bit about language design and, and in a university I studied compilers a bit and you know hmm. I, I think I know a little bit about it, but you know, the stuff that they do is just so much better than what I could even imagine, let alone do. So, you know, like I sort of trust the big teams and the smart people over there and, you know, I'll just uh, look at what they do. Yeah, I mean, they have a huge amount of resources that people like us cannot really hope to replicate and that even the open source community cannot really hope to replicate. I mean, granted, the open source community has helped out with Swift somewhat, but like the core work of building that compiler and building that language and figuring out all the details, you know, you know it almost requires something like Apple's team to get it right in the span of time they've gotten it right. Yeah, I I feel like... Much of what the uh, open source community does, like there are definitely exceptions, but it's a lot about bike shedding and, and about mm. the syntax of Swift and, and not really about the core. And, and it's a good thing. Like I, I'm happy that people are doing this and, and it makes the language better. And there are a lot of really good proposals from external people, but most of the real work is just still being done by Apple. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I'm excited to see what they come up with now. Like... You know, with Swift 4, if because they keep saying they don't want source-breaking changes and if this will actually happen and, you know, if mm. it's going to be finally going to be not as painful to upgrade. Yeah, like they've been dangling that in front of us for a couple of years already. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The next release is not going to break your stuff. Oh, wait a minute. Yeah, it will. Yeah. What, what's the plan at, at Venmo? When will you update to Swift 3? Uh, my guess is that we will tackle that in the new year. Wow. Maybe at the end of this year. Yeah. Yeah. Accepting that in another year, we'll probably have to upgrade to Swift 4. What I will say about this is that all the iteration doesn't bother me in Swift because I would prefer this to a language that is progressing in its early stages very, very slowly. Hmm. How many other languages, and I understand this is all marketing, but get to 4.0 within three or four years. Um, right. I like all the iteration. I, I think it's going to get Swift to a more stable place once they do finally locked down source compatibility i i don't mind it yeah i agree i mean it's a, for me it's a lot of work but it's uh, like as a user of the language i really like it and and i think it's a really good thing just last week i was having lunch with my friend who writes go and in go they don't have this problem apparently he says yeah basically they froze the language and you know the language is basically done and I never have that problem. I just, you know, he says my programs keep on working, which is also sort of pretty cool. <laughs> but does this mean that Go is never going to get generics? I don't know. Like, you know, on Hacker News, they always say that they add generics. But he's like, he's a super smart guy and I really respect him. And, and he's like, no, no, generics are a bad thing. And like, it's the first time I really disagreed with him. Like, I don't know how... Maybe if you've done too much C++ or something, but I find it really hard to imagine why people think generics are a bad thing. Yeah, I think uh, I was a bit skeptical of generics 
because I had done C++ in the past and saw that as an overwhelmingly bad experience in, <laughs> in many ways, um, mm. you know, largely because, you know, the templates in C++, which are, you know, that's their version of generics. And just, it seemed like it made everything incredibly fussy and also made just the compiler incredibly slow, mm. which is a problem that Swift does not have. So... I kind of got over my worry once I realized that the generics in Swift were not introducing those kind of problems. Yeah, well, the compiler is still slow, I guess, but yeah, no, it's it's different. Yeah. I remember you gave a talk about, um, but there was about enums, right? Like why we shouldn't be using enums well, at the Swift uh, Summit? I wasn't saying we shouldn't be, I mean, that, was, that was kind of picked up on afterwards. I know someone said that. I wasn't saying we never should, but I was saying that, I guess the point I was trying to make is that you know, as a program, you have you have to choose. You know, when when is it appropriate to use an enum, and when is it appropriate to use like a class hierarchy, right? Because an mm -hmm. enum is is fixed in a certain way that a class hierarchy is not. If you can always, if you can make subclasses, you can make new types in ways that can be easier to deal with instead of using enums. So yeah, I, yeah, I know that after that, someone said, "Oh, Jack is saying never write, never use enums," which is not what I was saying at all. Because I was even then, I was already writing code using enums every single day. So, I, I guess my my concern that I was seeing in the Swift community at that time was that there was a tendency, maybe, to you know throw out the baby with the bathwater. You know that oh, everything we were doing in Objective C is somehow wrong. Like no one should ever subclass anything. We should all be using enums all the time for everything. There is a lot of dogma in the community, like. People use protocols everywhere, and I think you know partly also because this, there was this protocol-oriented programming thing, and mm. and yeah, I guess it's the same with enums, and and people are trying to not use mutating and not to not use var, and mm. there is a lot of the a lot of dogma there, and a lot of you know, I think even like a lot of uninformed decision making, like where people just you know. The first thing they know is if they, if they have a problem, like the first thing they do is is create a protocol and and they try to not write classes at all. And I think it's uh, you know I I hope like in time that that people figure out and that that everybody sort of uses the right solution or the right tool for their for the right problem. Right. Yeah, I think I think that definitely both classes and structs and enums, of course. I mean, they all have their place. They all have different things and or different purposes. And I think this is one of the ways in which Swift is a more complicated language to use than Objective-C because it gives you some more choices. You have to sort of know from context what, you know, when is the right time to use these various tools. And once you've made a choice, some of the outcome of the choices makes things easier. You know, so suddenly it's like, okay, if you're using an enum and you're, you're writing a switch statements, well, the compiler will tell you if you've messed anything up. Whereas if, you, mm. if you're making a class hierarchy instead, you might forget to override a method you should have overridden in a particular subclass to do something differently. Um, mm. So that there are pros and cons. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I think a lot of the decisions are being, like whether, whether to use a struct or a class or an enum are being made without really understanding how they work. And I think, I hope it doesn't lead to code bases that are like too unmaintainable. Hmm. But I guess, you know, that's also a great way to learn to just make a lot of mistakes. That's yeah, how absolutely. I learned the most, you know. Yeah. I remember that I was, when I started doing Objective-C, I, I just, I came from Haskell and I was really against object-oriented programming. And uh, I, I really, like Objective-C sort of taught me to love 
OO as well. And hmm. and especially like the more hardcore OO, like you know, the stuff that Graham Lee is always talking about, like that's that's really beautiful. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that OO still has a lot going for it. You know, I think that both OO and functional programming each have their own, you know, like structs and classes, each has their own uses, right? Some things are are more easily applied to one or the other. Yeah. And I think as programmers, it's always better to have more tools at our disposal, more ways of doing things, which is one of the nice things about Swift. You know, it gives us things that we never really had the the opportunity to do in any sort of nice way, at least in Objective-C. Yeah, and I think, you know, another thing is also to sort of, um, once you know all the different ways you could solve a problem is to sort of trust your intuition. At least that's, so one other thing I I keep seeing is that people always want to do things, you know, like, we have to put everything either in a model, in a view, or in a controller, or you know, they add a view model, and then everything has to be in a view model. And or like sometimes OO is not the right solution there, or sometimes it's the perfect solution, and sometimes you know MVC just doesn't cut it, and you need like another class that you might not have a name for. It doesn't fit into a box, and that's fine. And I think I sort of see a lot where people are you know trying to do everything functionally, or doing everything MVC, or everything reactively and of course there's a benefit the less concepts you have to learn the easier it is but i would like that people sort of more trust their their guts and you know try not to force everything into a specific box right i think that being able to be flexible and apply different tools and different techniques to different problems is a very useful skill (laughs) i remember early in my career i was i worked with i had one colleague who he was a small talk programmer and he'd been working with, I think he'd either, he'd either worked at park place or at IBM on their small talk product for a while. And he was just completely sold on this. And he, I remember him saying, I don't want to write software, anything but small talk ever again. Like I just don't want to do it. If, if there's a project that needs something else, somebody else can go do it. I'm not going to do it. Wow. And as far as I know, he never did. I think he's retired now. And I don't know how long he worked after I knew him, but he may have only written small talk for the rest of his career. Who knows? But to me, it struck me as being very sort of weird constraint to place upon oneself. You know, there are a lot of languages that let you do a lot of different things. And small talk is great. And Perl is great. Like there, you know, there's all kinds of things you can do in different ways. You know, it just struck me as weird. <laughs> yeah, well, like with Swift, I guess what what sort of also happened is that after sort of this move away from very dynamic runtime programming, a lot of people who were relying on that, they sort of had to start fresh in Swift if they yeah. were writing Swift at all. And I I imagine that if, if that's your thing and if you really like that and if you're good at it, then it must be super frustrating to switch to Swift unless you like learning new things. But, you know, most people don't really like change. And hmm. I can imagine that there are people who, who are saying exactly the same thing about Objective C. Like they don't just they don't they don't want to write Swift. They want to write Objective C. And you know, I can understand. Like I, I'm happy that Swift came along, and and I feel at home in that language. But yep. it's not so easy, I guess, for for everybody. Yeah, I think, yeah. People people settle on different things and settle on patterns that they like, and it can be hard to adjust to different things. I felt some resistance towards Swift in the beginning. I mean, I started using it right away, but at the same time, I had this sort of nagging doubt about it not having all the dynamic features that I was used to. But then at the same time, you know, within a few months, I realized, okay, well, those dynamic features that Swift does not have, 
I haven't had a need for for any of these projects I've been working on <laughs> these past few months. Like, it's just not been a thing, you know. The dynamic runtime stuff is great for some things, and it leads to some things like Apple's implementation of KVO relies heavily on that, and you couldn't build KVO in the same way without it, right? No. So you probably couldn't build KVO in Swift as it stands today. But, you know, in a sense, that's maybe okay because Objective-C is still there. And there are other alternatives. You know, KVO is not the only thing in the world. So, yeah, there are many different solutions to the, you know, to the problems that KVO solves. And right. some of them, they're sort of similar, like the property observers, but some are just very, very different. Like, you know, instead of key value coding, you can just use anonymous functions a mm. lot of the time. Or I think it's it's a really exciting thing about Swift that we sort of get to as the community, we get to discover all these these features and, you know, sort of see like, okay, well, we've been doing it like with KVO for 20 years or however long. And now how do we solve the problems these days? And mm -hmm. yeah, I, I wonder, like, because Ladner said that he's in favor of adding more dynamic features and I wonder what, what will come there. Hmm. But I haven't missed any dynamic features so far. I think the one time I missed something was... I was working on a Mac app that was going to load some code from bundles. And uh, I actually couldn't make it work in Swift. This was very early on, though, so it may have been fixed in the meantime. And I don't know if it would actually wouldn't work or I just couldn't figure out how to make it work. But like the this, this sort of, you know, in Objective-C where I would just kind of load some code and say, you know, is it this class, you know, try and find the principal class in the bundle and instantiate it and say, okay, does it conform to this property? I'll assign it to something. And I couldn't quite make that work in Swift early on. And that kind of drove me a little bit nuts. But I know they've added some, this, you know, this was late 2014. So I know they've added things since then. It probably is doable now in some way. Again, it may have been doable then, just not doable by me. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Well, hey, I wonder if we should uh, wrap this up. Sounds good to me. All right. Yeah, good show. Yeah, good show, everybody. Yep. Well, maybe maybe I can do one more uh, shout out. So, Brandon Williams from Kickstarter, he did an amazing talk on how, what they do at Kickstarter with Swift, and it's really it's sort of far out there. They use lenses and everything to work with UIKit, and still like they do a lot of functional stuff, but still stay very close to UIKit. I think the video will be available soon. That's cool. awesome. So, uh, if if we have a link in time, we will put it in the show notes. Uh, if not, we'll. I guess we'll just tweet it. Is yeah. that how we communicate with our listeners? I believe so. Jack? Yeah. I believe, okay. I believe tweeting is the method. Put it in MySpace. <laughs> I'll post it on Friendster. You post it on Orkut. <laughs> Google Plus. <laughs> I can drop it onto my Zynga blog. <laughs> okay, let's uh, wrap this up here. Show notes for this episode can be found at buildphase.fm slash 112. You can find us on Twitter at BuildPhase. And uh, please go into iTunes and leave a nice review and a four-star, no, a five-star. What am I saying? <laughs> a five-star review is what you must leave on iTunes because that's how other people will find us and know that this is a quality podcast. Your five-star review counts. Every vote counts, guys. All right. Good show, guys. Good show. Thank you for joining us, Chris. Yeah, thank you for having me. 